Hear the word of the Lord. Loving God, I pray that the words that come from our mouth might be truly inspired by your Holy Spirit. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was sitting next to uh, Graham Leo at the men's breakfast yesterday, um, and we were reflecting on our post-Pentecost offerings for, um, for our sermon series um, being on Lamentations and the Cranky Prophets. And he commented that we haven't really given you much joy and cheer lately. And today's passage from Amos seems to start promisingly. What could be wrong with a basket of summer fruit? Everyone loves summer fruit, don't they? But it quickly descends into cranky prophet mode with Israel's actions being condemned and the promise that everyone will end up going bald. As a man with a full head of hair, that's a scary prospect. And I suspect that um, the uh, younger and particularly the ladies might find that quite scary as well. But what are we to make of this vitriol? How does it apply to our lives? And is there any hope at all? Dale preached a great sermon as an introduction to this uh, book last week. And if you didn't hear it, it's easy to catch up by uh, checking out the podcast. But in it, he mentioned that Amos was originally from the southern kingdom and was prophesying in the northern kingdom. I mean, can you imagine an upstart from New South Wales coming into Queensland and telling Queenslanders what they should or shouldn't be doing? It just wouldn't happen in Rabina, would it? Actually, growing up, I used to think that Queenslanders spoke funny. As a child, I remember getting really frustrated trying to explain to my relatives that we were moving from Sydney to Newcastle. But they kept saying that they didn't know of any place called Newcastle. They knew of a place called Newcastle, but not Newcastle. Words and their meanings can be dangerous things. Um, if you've ever travelled to America, you have to quickly realise that an entree in America doesn't mean what an entree is in Australia. I mean, the portion size in America is big enough without confusing that an entree is actually their main meal. Now, if I was to say this morning that I'm wearing blue pants, uh, most of you would look and say, yeah, that's fair enough. But in some parts of the world, people would say, you're sharing way too much information, Stuart. And we all know that uh, we have to be careful about who we tell that we're wearing thongs uh, to, particularly Americans. Um, I, I do know a, a Franciscan monk who's now a priest who was mortally embarrassed uh, when he rang a restaurant to book. Uh, he was from New Zealand and he rang and tried to book a table for six. Um, they thought he was up to something else. Um, and accents can be confusing, um, and they can be humorous, um, but, but there's a bit of wordplay going on at the beginning of this passage from, uh, from Amos, which is the fourth vision that he's sharing with the people of the Northern Kingdom. You see, in the south of, uh, of, um, of the kingdom... 
in the southern, the southerners would pronounce fruit as kietz. But in the north, they pronounce fruit as kates. The problem was that in the south, kates meant something different. It actually meant the end, not fruits. So in the first instance, the northerners would have thought Amos was explaining his vision as a harmless basket of fruit. But actually, he was talking about something much more stark, the end. As he continues, in the same way we would quickly know if we were talking um, incorrectly in international company and mention the word thong, um, they quickly would have realised by Amos's content and tone that something much more significant was being talked about, not just the harmless fruit. In this clever word play, a shepherd who's also a farmer of fig trees from down south is reminding the hearers, which includes us today, that often things that might seem harmless enough can actually have dire and eternal consequences. At the time, it may have seemed harmless enough to boo Adam Goods. But if you saw the documentary that was aired this week or the news stories around it, you will be aware that it had far more significant impact than I'm sure many realised. The book of Amos is the earliest of the prophetic books and it focuses on the ultimate consequences of Israel's disobedience. His words are powerful in their focus on the destructive consequences of poor choices, self-focused behaviour and sin. God may initially come across in this passage and throughout Amos as brutal and punishing. But if we take a look at verse 2, I think we get an insight into what God is really doing. It indicates that God will not protect Israel from the consequences of their repeated turning away from God, from their poor choices and their self-focused behaviour and their sin. Now, this might seem at odds with what we know of God, who is a God of grace and forgiveness and mercy. But I think it's important, particularly when we're reading passages like this, to remember that while grace and forgiveness thankfully have eternal implications, the result of our actions here on earth sometimes, even often, actually most of the time, have real earthly consequences even after we have repented and even after we have received God's forgiveness, we will often have to be met with the consequences of our actions. Though God established covenant relationship with the people of Israel, their repeated unjust behaviour 
has prompted God to remove God's favour from their relationship and to leave Israel to be met with the consequences of their unrepentant actions. You might remember if you were here last week that uh, Dale shared that the main two themes uh, that flow throughout uh, the book of Amos are righteousness and justice. And Amos is accusing the northern kingdom of creating a system that perpetuated injustice. Their worship was not authentic. And they made everything about themselves and how they could exploit one another for monetary gain. The poor became objects that could just be simply traded. A system had been created to perpetuate the power of those who already had power to perpetuate the wealth of those who were already wealthy and to do both at the expense of the poor. Unfair hiring and payment practices which guaranteed the impoverishment of the labourers effectively forced them into slavery. And because of this impoverishment and this disenfranchisement, the poor themselves exploited each other. And the entire society was organised according to domination rather than loving your neighbour, as God intended. Amos boldly declares that the oppressor is anyone who participates in injustice. Is there any wonder God doesn't stand for this? Is it any wonder that these types of repeated actions would actually lead to ruin. Throughout Scripture, it's undeniably evident that God cares deeply about the oppressed and the poor and the exploited. You could go as far as saying that God actually has a priority for them. The people of Israel had forgotten this. And Amos's vision was realised when Israel was sent into exile. When we are not on the side of the marginalised, the oppressed and the poor, we are not where God is. And we are not where God is calling us to be. I'm not surprised that every great revival in church history was associated with some sort of realignment with the people of God and the vulnerable of our world. God's call to the church is to be the hands and the feet of God in the world, offering love, working for each other's good. This calling is incompatible with systematic injustice which compels the church to actively combat oppressive systems of every and any kind. You might remember, if you were here last week, that Dale used the great quote from Martin Luther King Jr. He who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. In God's economy, however, Ruin is not the end. From the ruins, God promises restoration. 
At the very end of Amos, we see the promises of God to never leave that those who turn to him abandoned. Let me read to you the final verses of the book of Amos. On that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old in order that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this. The time is surely coming, says the Lord, when the one who plows shall overtake the one who reaps and the treader of grapes, the one who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them upon their land and they shall never again be plucked up out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord. Many Christian scholars point to this as a messianic prediction that when Jesus comes, this will be restored. God does not let his people remain broken and in ruin. My first spiritual director, when I began theological college, asked me a very confronting question in one of our early sessions together. He asked me, Stuart, when have you ever failed? I quickly responded by saying, well, I failed every single law subject that I sat in my commerce degree. And he said, no, no, that's not what I meant. He looked at me gently and said, when have you really failed? And as I thought about it, I had to admit that, yeah, I had failures, but I didn't think I had ever really failed to that point. And he shared with me that when a person has really failed, you come to a significantly deeper understanding of God's power, God's presence, God's love, God's grace, and God's mercy. And Jesus reflects this in the passage from Luke's gospel where the sinful, failed woman anoints Jesus' feet with oil and then the critics um, uh, start uh, to criticise her and Jesus for these actions. And Jesus replies, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence she has shown great love, but the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Failure may seem like the end of the world, but for God, it's not. It's an opportunity for us to realise and God to show the depth of love and of grace and forgiveness and the power of a new beginning that we can find in Jesus. It's no surprise that the places that see the most revival are where forgiveness is lavished the most generously. A few years ago, if you were a part of our church then, we had the theme for the year as Living Forgiven. Does anybody remember that one? And now thinking about that theme and, and that passage that we've just heard from Amos, I actually think it's a call for revival. 
one that's worth repeating even though we might have changed our themes to something different this year. How would we be changed and how would the world around us be changed if we actually lived like we were forgiven? The answer is, the answer has to be that we would see revival in a very real sense. And if we don't think there's enough revival, perhaps it's because there is not enough recognition of our need for or our acceptance of the forgiveness that God offers. The parts of our world where the church is growing the fastest are where the the church meets oppression and loss with the overwhelming love of God and offers an identity as a child of God. Places like the subcontinent in the Middle East, in parts of Africa and Asia, the church is exploding despite many of those places experiencing significant persecution. The world that you and I live in, however, is one of relative privilege. I pray earnestly that our world does not need to be brought to ruin to recognise our need for God. I'm relieved to know that if it does, that God will be closely with us. But I should clarify, I don't believe that God is in any way sadistic and intentionally causes ruin on those he loves to make them love him back. But I am certain that we will find God amongst the ruin, ready to restore and ready to rebuild. There is always hope when we turn or return to God. I've already mentioned that God's priorities for the ruined. So if we find ourselves ruined, we can be certain that God is there waiting for us to recognize the powerful, restorative presence of God. And it only takes for us to seek it. In the meantime, it's important for us to be aware that both the privileged and the previously ruined and now restored bear significant responsibility. It's why Amos is so critical of the Northern Kingdom. They knew better. They had seen the power of God at work. It's why Jesus is so critical of the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They knew better. And they knew the power of God. Well, my friends, we know better. We know the power of God, don't we? How will we use our privilege? How will we use our restoration? I pray earnestly that that we do not hear Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, members of the church of the Anglican Church at Rabina. We're about to redevelop our buildings and our grounds. And outside, we will have 
a visible example of something that is in ruin being rebuilt and starts this Monday, tomorrow. But how can we ensure that we don't get distracted by thinking that this is about our comfort? How can we reveal more of God through who we are because of who God is? How can we use this privilege to see even more relationships, even more connection, growth, service, hope, generosity, intimacy, humility, even more of what's begun and even more that we thought we had finished, even more than what we can yet imagine and even more of coming alongside those who are marginalised, poor and oppressed even more of being the hands and the feet of our God in the world. Can I pray? Lord, you have lavished us with much forgiveness. And we are sorry for taking that for granted and missing opportunities in our own revival and the revival of those around us. We recognise the great privilege that we have gathering in this place in this way. And help us to take that privilege and turn it towards your heart for those who are not yet part of your family, those who are broken within our community and in need. Help us to be aware of your presence actively at work already in this community. Help us to be challenged by the powerful words of Amos today. Help us to see hope amongst the ruin that we sometimes think is our own lives. And we pray, Lord, that we may be witnesses to your great revival as you build your church and show your love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we continue to praise and worship an amazing God?